That is precisely why I did that too. The dramatic entrance. I, I mean, love and applause. Wow. <laughs> um, just a reminder of the format. Um, I have my alarm set to go at 6:33, so I can stop there um, and open it up to questions or discussion if we need it or have it. And then um, by 6:40 we'll be done with that and we'll transition over to the church. 6:45 sharp is when Compline starts. Gary believe in that tonight. And then that'll be it. We'll be done by 7. So. Um, it would be good if the air conditioner was cut off. We're comfortable in here. I'm without my keys. I'm on that. Don't start till I get back. The rector has it. We got a gold key set. Oh. It's 5.58. We got two minutes. Look at this. I may be out of a job. You know what? It's just evidence that over at the free school, we changed the air all the The Lord be with you. Let us pray. This is a unique prayer from the end of the Ash Wednesday liturgy. O Lord our God, grant us grace to desire you with our whole heart, that desiring you we may seek you, that seeking you we may find you, that finding you we may love you, and that loving you We may hate those sins from which you have delivered us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, much like Mike did in his sermon kickoff for the seven last words, I'd like to begin our Wednesday Lenten teachings with a bit of an orientation to the overarching theme of these next few weeks. This idea of faces in the crowd transformed by the cross. And at least for me, that word transformed is the key here. Because um, you'll remember that right before Lent, we had that Sunday that was the last Sunday of Epiphany, which also celebrated the Transfiguration, and it does every year. Before Lent, we have a moment of the Transfiguration, and I think it's a bit of a hinge moment, um, because what we're preparing to do in in the Transfiguration um, is to catch a glimpse of Jesus in his glory, but knowing just like he does on the mountain that we have to go through the cross to get there. And so Lent, if we're going through the cross, if we're, if we're brooding on the cross, then there's something about that brooding that I, I hope and pray is going to transform us. And there's a further connection because in Matthew 17 and in Mark 9, when each of them say that Jesus was transfigured before them, the Greek word there is metamorpho. Sounds like metamorphosis, right? When we think of butterflies. But it's just to be changed, to be transformed. It's used only two other times in the New Testament, in Romans 12 and in 2 Corinthians. So uh, those Bibles, pick them up. You're going to need them. We are going to fly all over them, probably a little too far over them. But we'll start at Romans 12, and that's page 1126 for, for speed. You can also use your phones. Romans 12, page 1126, 1126. So the word metamorpho, metamorphosis, transformed, changed, is used two times in the Gospels and then two times in Paul's letters. And one of them is Romans 12, 1 to 2. It's classic. It's famous. We all know it. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, also translatable, reasonable, your reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be, there it is, metamorpho, transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The implication here, right, that our minds in our natural state, they're darkened. We, we actually, we can't understand, we, we can't get um, seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear. This morning, Jesus was giving the parable of the sower in morning prayer. Um, and this is one of the few that he explains, and it's a prophecy from Isaiah. They, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They cannot perceive, they cannot understand without some kind of transformation, some kind of change that happens in them. So even to accept this teaching, even to to go and pray Compline for real, right? To do it in the spirit, to do it in our hearts, it takes the transformative work of God within our minds. Our minds need to be renewed to understand, to perceive, to see, to hear, um, and then notice to discern. If we want to know how to live, if we want to know what God's will is, if we want to know right from wrong, if we want to know all these things, we, we need to practice to be trained in discernment, to, to hear the voice of God, to discern it in scripture, to discern it in conversation, to discern it from sermons. We need to test, discern, practice discerning the will of God. So I, one key aspect, I hope, of this brooding on the cross, these faces in the crowd transformed by the cross is that our minds will be renewed as we interact with scripture because that's the context of the second place that Paul uses metamorphosis to be transformed. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 18, that's page 1146, so about 20 pages over. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 18. Paul is setting up a contrast between the glories of the covenants. The the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, had a glory about it. But the New Covenant, the New Testament, it surpasses it in glory. And so notice what he says, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, we Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. There it is, metamorphosis. Being transformed into the same image, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So this transformation that we're talking about, this idea of our our minds being renewed, of, of our hearts being transformed, it comes by the Spirit... As we behold, as we, as we catch a glimpse, as we discern, as we um, see and hear with the eyes and ears of our hearts, 
the glory of the Lord. But how does that happen? How do, how do we behold the glory of the Lord? Well, in this context, it's interesting. Paul is, um, is talking about that being beholding the glory of the Lord comes through reading, through studying Scripture. Did you notice that? When the Jews are reading the Old Covenant, there's a glory there, but they can't see it. And when we turn to the Lord, when our minds are renewed, when we do have the eyes and ears of faith, when we study Scripture, we have an opportunity to behold the glory of the Lord and by that be transformed. And that's even more explicit in the final passage that relates to the transfiguration that we'll look at. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. Page 1207. 1207. This is Peter, one of the disciples we're looking at tonight, who is, um, he's making a comparison between his eyewitness testimony and something. And it's very important what the something is. 2 Peter 1, starting with verse 16. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And here's the contrast. Here's the comparison. He was an eyewitness. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw all this happen. He heard all this happen. And yet, it's not as good as Scripture. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns in your hearts and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing, first of all, That no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is so profound that what we have in Scripture is actually more fully confirmed. It's, It's better than, if we can believe it, being there on the mountain with Jesus, seeing him in person on the mountain, hearing the voice of the majestic glory. And notice the function of Scripture in this passage. That our hearts are darkened. And in studying scripture, reading scripture together, we are enlightened and transformed. And all this comes because scripture is not merely men making things up. It is people speaking by the Holy Spirit, carried along by God. That what scripture says, God says. That when we come to scripture, we're hearing the very voice of of God, And it's a light that shines into our hearts like a lamp in a dark place. And so I, I trust, I think that our hope for this whole series of brooding on the cross, faces in the crowd transformed by the cross. I hope that what we're doing here fundamentally is just together, picking up the jewel of the cross and just twisting it back and forth and looking at all of its beauty and facets And beholding its glory through the eyes of these biblical characters. And as we do that, we slowly but surely over this Lenten journey are transfigured, transformed to be more like him. Because the cross is glorious. It's one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith that that this is what we say is glorious. 
This is the Giro Cross. It was commissioned by Archbishop Giro in about 960 or so. Um, it is, let's see if I can remember this correctly. It's the oldest depiction of Christ dead. Before this, Christ was on the cross, but he was suffering. He was alive. This, this is the earliest depiction we have of Jesus Christ on the cross actually expired. It's very large. It's six feet. Um, the thing behind it, this is why I love this picture. Um, the thing behind it is called a mandorla. It's from Italian for, I'm going to say this the NorCal way, the Northern Californian way. Almond, right? Almond, just because of the shape. It's an almond shape, and that becomes in art a mandorla, an almond. And it's, um, it's most often used in depictions of the transfiguration because the mandorla is displaying glory. And um, that mandorla actually behind the cross is not original. It was added in 1638, so 700 years later it was added. But I still love the commentary because the cross is glorious. It's one of those deep, deep paradoxes of the Christian faith and of Scripture, especially in the Gospel of John, because when John talks about the hour or the timing of Jesus' glory, he's talking about the cross. When he talks about Jesus' exaltation, we, we think glory, we think, we, you know, we think kings going out and riding and getting victory over their enemies and crushing their heads and all that. I mean, that's glory to us. When we think exaltation, we think put him on a throne really high, right, the highest seat in the house, and he's got the best one, and he's taking it all for himself. And uh, the cross completely inverts that because this, this is what's glorious. That the God of the universe dies for us and takes our sins. That his exaltation is not on a throne yet, but it's on a cross. The cross demonstrates Jesus' glory. The normal contrast between suffering and glory is transcended. Suffering and glory come together in the cross. So let's try to behold together the glory of the cross through the eyes of Peter and, dare I say it, yes, Judas. We'll see how that works. I, I think it will. I hope it does. But let's start with Peter, right? He's probably the most famous disciple. He doesn't need too much of an introduction He's the first disciple Jesus called. Um, He's often a spokesperson for the rest of the disciples. Uh, Maybe that's because he's so hot-tempered and just jumps in, or it's because he's a leader. Um, It's probably both, right, because we know his nature if we've studied him at all. He's a man of extremes. So I think there's, there's no better snapshot we can get of Peter than this passage in Matthew. So go to Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13. That's page 977. And we're going to get a snapshot of Peter kind of, I mean, at his best and at his worst, all in the same story. It's just a glorious, a glorious story. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. A man of extremes is Peter. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say Elijah. Others say John the Baptist, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter jumps in. He replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Peter is riding high, right? I mean, he just got it right. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You're going to be the rock of the church. You're going to be the leader of the early church. He's, this is the highest moment for any disciple in this gospel to this point. And then Jesus takes all of that excitement about him getting it right, about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah, and he starts doing this to it. He starts taking it and saying, well, the glory that I'm talking about, the glory that I'm going to go into as Messiah, it's not the one that you're thinking of. Keep going. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, Peter took him aside. Hey, Jesus. And he began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. From the literal high point of the Gospels and the disciples to the literal low point, right? You just got called Satan by Jesus himself. That's Peter. He's he's, he's extremes. He's up and down. He's all over the place. He's in first, and sometimes that's great, and sometimes it's very, very bad. Um, This is Peter and his his just, I don't know, hot-tempered, excitable, Gary-like. Sorry, that's, I mean, that. um, This is Peter, a snapshot, man of extremes. He's way up, riding high, and he's way down as soon as Jesus starts doing this to his expectations. Let's reconform your expectations of what it means to be Messiah, what you think about glory, what you think about victory. Let's do that around this. And Peter doesn't like it, at least initially. I think he gets there. It's a long, slow process with Peter. So that's a snapshot of Peter. Let's uh, let's move to Peter and specifically the cross. Not the theoretical idea that the cross is coming as Jesus starts to explain it to him, but the cross in history and an event. Matthew 26, verses 69, excuse me. We'll start with verse 30 to 35. Matthew 26, verse 30 to 35, that's page 989. The Lord's Supper has just been celebrated and instituted, and there uh, Jesus is on his way to his betrayal. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You all will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter, he jumps in. Peter answered him, though they all fall away, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. 
another high point in the story of Peter, at least in his own mind, right? Those other disciples, they might not mean it, Jesus. I mean, they might not really love you or follow you, but trust me, I will. We got this. If I have to die with you, we're dying tonight. Let's go. Ride or die, we're riding. That's Peter. If I have to die with you, I will never fall away. And I I don't know Jesus' affect. I wish I knew the emotion. I wish I knew kind of the tone with which he said this. But I, I bet it's compassionate. I bet it's just so understanding that he's just looking at Peter so foolish, so unaware, so clueless as to doing the own depths of his depravity. That Jesus, I mean, it's not taking him by surprise when he says, you'll deny me three times. And then, of course, that's exactly what happens. Flip the page. Matthew 26, verse 69. Jesus has been arrested. He's before the council, and his uh, disciples have scattered. And Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with the Galilean, Jesus. My uh, daughter's children's book would say very slowly, No, I don't know Jesus. It's a great book, The Friend Who Forgives. I'll probably reincorporate it. He denied it before them, verse 70, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. The next part of the children's book. No, I don't know Jesus. It's in bigger print, right? It's more dramatic. After a little while, the bystanders, verse 73, they came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them. Your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. That's a great section of the children's book. No, I don't know Jesus. The conviction with which he says it. And... um, it hurts a little bit when you hear your toddler yelling that at the top of her lungs during rest time, right? She, she just remembers the story, and that's just very loud and dramatic. And uh, a couple weeks ago, she was just, no, I don't know Jesus. And we're like, oh, no, don't pick that up, please. Pick up something else. Pick something else up from the books we're reading you. My goodness. Immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I'm betting Peter probably was thinking to himself after being called Satan that it doesn't get much worse than this, right? But it does. When Jesus is on trial, he's being beaten, he's being whipped, he's suffering injustice to the extreme and... um, Instead of living up to his word, his promise of, if I have to die with you, I'm going to go with you. He's denied Jesus three times. And so that moment, the whole process of the crucifixion, the cross itself, I'm sure, it represents to Peter his utter and abject failure. He failed at so many levels. 
He failed to be a disciple of Jesus. He failed to live up to his word. He failed in all sorts of ways. And it, it culminates, it climaxes in, in this, that he denies Jesus three times. And um, I was looking a bit into who, who do we actually think is there witnessing the cross. And it's interesting, um, all the Gospels have all sorts of actual characters that are there seeing the crucifixion. But Luke... Luke says that there's a huge crowd witnessing this. And it, was, it included, quote, all his acquaintances. And so I, I think that means that Peter, he, he's not right there at the foot of the cross like Mary and John, but he's, he's at least far back enough, but close enough that he can see it. And those, no, I don't know Jesus. That just resounds in his head as he watches his friend get killed the cross at this point of the story is a stark sudden dramatic jarring in your face look at Peter's failure what about Judas perhaps the second most famous disciple who also doesn't need much of an introduction for a very different reason obviously Each time Judas is introduced in the four Gospels, there's always a direct reference to the fact that he was the one who would betray Jesus. John gives us the best window, I think, into Judas. And incidentally, it comes, his introduction in John's Gospel, it comes uh, within the context of one of Peter's high points for contrast. So John 6, 66, page 1060. John 666. Don't pay too close attention to that. It doesn't matter that much. John 666. This is where Judas is introduced in John's gospel. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And here's the high point. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray. And every time Judas pops up, um, Judas is the one who would betray or the betrayer. And here he's called the devil, or a devil, and um, later in John's Gospel, in John 13, the devil is said to enter him and kind of, in some sense, take over, leading to the actual events of the betrayal. So that's kind of the introduction we get to Judas, but here's a snapshot of him as a person, his character. John 12, 1 to 6, page 1068, just a few pages down. John 12, 1 to 6. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment she made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot... One of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Very pious sounding for a second. We could have sold all this and given it to the board. There's much better use for this money. We could have done something ten times pious. Er. But he wasn't saying that because he really cared. He's saying that because he wants a cut, his cut, that he must think is secret. That's who Judas is. What about Judas and the cross? Matthew 26. We'll flip back. Matthew 26, verse 14, page 988. It's down at the bottom there. In keeping with that theme from John of his um, personal greed, notice what motivates him. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. His, his consumption with his own desires, wants, lusts, greed, it, it drives him to find an opportunity to betray Jesus. Because he knows the authorities want him and he knows that he can get him to them. And of course, that's exactly what happens. The next page, Matthew 26, 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Hollywood could not have written this more dramatically, right? Going up to uh, one of your best friends, theoretically, and kissing him is the sign of betrayal. And yet Jesus, he, he sees that and he responds, friend. And I don't wonder, I do wonder, um, if that word friend is actually genuine. That that Jesus in that moment um, could be saying to him, you you have a chance to repent of this later. It'll tie into where we're going to kind of close this off. But um, even in the darkest moment, the actual betrayal... Jesus can extend a hand of grace. And in the worst possible act that you could do or I could do or anyone could do, Jesus even says, um, Woe to him by who the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him if he had never been born. And he still reaches out and says, Friend. So what, what makes the difference between Peter and Judas? What's the single distinguishing factor between these two disciples? I think it's this, that um, it's the distinction between repentance and remorse. The distinction between feeling sorry for what you've done and feeling so sorry for what you've done that you confess it and repent from it and turn from it. Thomas Oden, in his third volume of his systematic theology, Life in the Spirit, says this. There reigns in the broken human heart a feeling of discord. 
A lack of congruence between who one is and who one ought to be. Christian preaching does not circumvent this feeling of incongruence, but exposes it and addresses it openly. The crushed human heart must be felt empathetically. The longing for peace, the earnest desire for truth, the penetration of self-deceptions, the hunger for freedom from a life of sin is the direct concern of Christian testimony. I think the difference between Peter and Judas when it comes to the cross is when we're exposed, when we see the cross for what it is, that it was actually, I mean, I put him there. I betrayed him. I've denied him. That's my fault. And that's what Odin is getting us to, that there's... There becomes, or there should become, this moment of realization within the human heart that uh, I'm not as I should be. I, I, I deny, I betray, I sin, I, I do this. This is me. And what do we do with that feeling? And that's the distinction between Peter and Judas. When confronted with the horrors of our own sin, of which the cross is the ultimate symbol Judas runs away from Jesus, and Peter runs to him. Look at Matthew 27, verses 3 to 10. We're coming towards the end. Matthew 27, 3 to 10. Page 990. Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. We need to press in there for a minute. Isn't that the worst thing you could say to a sinner? I've sinned. See to it yourself. Good luck with that. Try to figure out how to atone. Try to figure out what to do. Try to see to it yourself. And that's what Judas does. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. He saw to it himself. He didn't repent of his sin. He was remorseful. He felt sorry. But instead of running to Jesus, eventually... He cuts himself off and runs away from the um, third millennium ministry study Bible. After Jesus was handed over to Pilate, Judas regretted what he had done, recognizing that Jesus was innocent and that he was going to be killed. But rather than repenting and returning to Jesus like Peter and the other disciples, Judas killed himself. This shows a remorse, but not a true repentance. Jesus doesn't believe, excuse me, Judas does not believe Jesus' words about his own resurrection. Because at this point, he does not have the opportunity to run and go to Jesus. Jesus is dead, will be soon, good as dead, I should say. And instead of trusting that Jesus was actually true in his 
prophecy that he's going to die, but he's going to rise. Instead of trusting that, he goes and he, quote, sees to his sin himself. Peter, by contrast, John 21. Page 1078. John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two of other his disciples were gathered together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Peter, at this moment, I'm sure, is completely unsure about his standing. Jesus' words were true. He died and rose again. And yet Peter is probably still on eggshells walking around Jesus because the next scene has yet to happen. It's the restoration. And knowing his betrayal and knowing his denial and knowing all of his sin, what does he do with it? What does he do with the cross? Instead of running away from Jesus, he runs toward him. Puts on his outer garment, throws himself into the sea, swims probably as fast as he possibly can to get to Jesus. If we're honest with ourselves, that feeling of discord, of incongruence, of failure that Peter and Judas both experienced, it's in our hearts as well. So the question is, what do we do with that feeling? What do we do with the knowledge of our sin? What do we do when confronted with the cross and the fact that we ourselves also put Jesus there? Will we run away from Jesus or will we run towards him? And funnily enough, the invitation is this. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money... Buy and eat. Come buy milk and wine without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me, Jesus says. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my sure, steadfast love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to all peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. You shall call a nation you do not know. A nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord, neither are your ways my ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Jesus' invitation to us when we realize the depths of our sin is to come to him. And to realize that as, as deep and dark as our sin is, it's paradoxically the same moment of his victory over it that cross. My alarm didn't go off. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return. Let him repent to the Lord, for he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon That's the invitation of Lent, the invitation of the cross, the invitation to take that internal incongruence, that that shame, that guilt, and acknowledge it and give it back to Jesus, who takes it onto himself and kills it right there. And so let's do that. Um, In the middle of the tables is a little prayer. It's called the Kyrie Pantocrator, the Lord, ruler of all. It's what's known in the uh, prayer book as a canticle. A canticle is a song or a poem that you pray in response to the reading of God's word during morning or evening prayer. So if you would please stand and we'll pray this together. O Lord and ruler of the hosts of heaven. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of all their righteous offspring, you made the heavens and the earth with all their vast array. All things quake with fear of your presence. They tremble because of your power. But your merciful promise is beyond all measure. It surpasses all that our minds can fathom. O Lord, you are full of compassion, long-suffering, and abounding in mercy. You hold back your hand. You do not punish as we deserve. In your great goodness, Lord, you have promised forgiveness to sinners, that they may repent of their sin and be saved. And now, O Lord, I bend the knee of my heart and make my appeal, sure of your gracious goodness. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned, and I know my wickedness only too well. Therefore, I make this prayer to you. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me. Do not let me perish in my sin, nor condemn me to the depths of the earth. For you, O Lord, are the God of those who repent. And in me you will show forth your goodness. Unworthy as I am, you will save me in accordance with your great mercy. And I will praise you without ceasing all the days of my life. For all the powers of heaven sing your praises, and yours is the glory to ages of ages. Amen. There are two canticles in the prayer book appropriate to Lent. The other one starts this way. Seek the Lord while he wills to be found. Call upon him when he draws near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the evil one their thoughts, and let them turn To the Lord, for he will have compassion. And to our God, for he will richly pardon.
The Lord be with you. God, you say in your word that if our hearts condemn us, you are greater than our hearts. We do turn to our God. And we thank you that you have compassion and that you richly pardon. Take from us our burdens, our sins, our guilt, our shame. We put them on the cross. And leave them there in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed to compliment.